Welcome to episode 32 of Off the Shelf. Hi, my name is Rod Bergen, and I want to welcome you to Off the Shelf. Our goal is to help you to know what it means to be a true follower of Jesus Christ. Our podcast is primarily directed to followers and former followers like ourselves of William Branham and his message. We have now reached over a hundred countries with our podcast. If you are enjoying the podcast, please leave a comment on our website. Today, I am excited to have as my guest, Abdu Murray, who is the North American Director of Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. If you aren't familiar with RZIM, we have a link on the offtheshelf.life website if you're interested in finding out more about their ministry. Abdu is the author of two books, Grand Central Question, Answering the Critical Concerns of the Major Worldviews, and Apocalypse Later, Why the Gospel of Peace Must Trump the Politics of Prophecy in the Middle East. Links to his two books are on our website as well. Abdu holds a BA in Psychology from the University of Michigan and earned his Juris Doctor from the University of Michigan Law School. As an attorney, Abdu was named several times in Best Lawyers of America and Michigan Super Lawyer. He is the Scholar in Residence of Christian Thought and Apologetics at the Josh McDowell Institute of Oklahoma Wesleyan University. One of the unusual things about Abdu was that at one time, he was a proud Muslim who studied the Quran and Islam. But after a nine-year investigation into the historical, philosophical, and scientific underpinnings of the major world religions, Abdu discovered that the historic Christian faith is the best answer to both the questions of the mind and the longings of the heart. Our listeners, Abdu, for the most part, are unfamiliar with your ministry. And I heard you relate your personal journey from Islam to Christianity in Arizona earlier this year. And I think our listeners would really love to hear how you came to faith. How did the devout follower of Islam come to be a true follower of Jesus? Well, thanks, Rod, for the opportunity and uh, for being on the show as well. It's, it's an honor and a pleasure. And it's always an honor and a pleasure to actually tell that story. It's my second favorite story. My first favorite story is uh, 2,000 years old. Uh, mine's not nearly that old, uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I do love talking about it. Um, uh, and I was raised a, a pretty serious Muslim, actually. And, um, uh, you know, Muslims have a varying spectrum of, of devotion, just like uh, every other faith, faith community. You have people who are... Uh, in name only that thing. Then you have people who are devout, devoted at varying levels of degrees, and then you have those who are, you know, sort of, they're all in in various ways. Um, I was between very devoted to all in, um, in in the sense that um, theologically I was all in, but I was also very evangelistic. Um, yeah. In terms of being a Muslim, yeah. I thought it was the cat's whiskers, man. I thought it was great, um, and everyone should believe it. Um, largely because I thought Islam was reasonable. I thought it was the way to heaven, uh, to God's paradise, and I wanted people to be in God's paradise. Um, so this was an early age. Uh, sometimes in middle school, uh, oftentimes in high school, I'd be talking to folks, and then through college, it got you know much more intense, um, and on through. So. 
I was pretty serious about it. Now, I was raised in a Shiite Muslim tradition. There's the two major sects. There are, there are a lot of sects of Islam. Um, uh, surprise. I mean, human beings tend to do that. We tend to be sectarian in that sense. And it's the largest sect, right? Well, the Shiites are the, are the, are the minority Oh, no, sect. no. It's, um, Sunni, is the, Sunni is the largest one. Right, exactly. So of the two major sects, um, uh, uh, Shiite are the smaller of the two. And then, of course, there are branches of Shiites, there are branches of Sunnis and all these kind of things. Um, and there are also some offshoots that are neither Sunni nor Shia. Um, but uh, so I was raised in a Shiite tradition. Um, but, you know, largely speaking, the, the, theolo- the theology is, isn't any different and the practices aren't really any different either. There are some here and there. I know there's a lot of Sunnis who would disagree with that and the Shiites who would, who would uh, argue with the Sunnis about some of those things. And there are some differences, but in terms of the um, practice itself, um, you would have a difference between Lutherans and Baptists, for example. Yeah, yeah. That's what you would call the differences, really. Well, I was pretty serious about it. And as I said, I was talking to people about why they were what they were. And I often opened up with a, um, with a, uh, a question. Uh, at some point early in the conversation, I would have asked this question with someone who was getting serious about this with me. And the question was this, why are you, you know, whatever you are? So, you know, in, my, in, 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 the, in the suburb of Detroit I grew up in at the time, now it's very diverse, but then it was homogeneously white. Um, we were sort of the dash of olive oil in the sea of rice. Um, so we were exotic in that sense. Yeah. And, people got to, and people would ask me, what do you guys believe exactly? So I used it to my, to, my, to my advantage. Now, most of the people who were there were at least nominally Christian. Um, and I was an equal opportunity faith knocker outer of her. It wasn't just Christians I was going after. It was anybody who wasn't a Muslim. But Christians were sort of low-hanging fruit because they were around. Um, so I would ask them a question. And if it was a Jew, I'd ask them this question uh, related to their traditions. If it was an atheist, I'd ask them this question, whatever it was. But for Christians, because they were the majority, I would ask them this question. Why are you a Christian? Give me the reason why you're a Christian. And um, I thought people, when they said that they were something of, of, of belief system, they actually meant it, and they could give me reasons. Yeah. Uh, I was shocked to find out fairly soon afterwards that that's not true at all. Uh, they had almost no reasons. People just basically said, well, we go to the church, this Presbyterian church down the street um, on Christmas and Easter, so I guess I'm a Presbyterian, or I guess I'm a Methodist, or whatever, you know, pick your denomination. Um, or they would say, you know, the more fundamental reason was, well, I was born into a Christian family, and I guess that's why I'm a Christian. So my follow-up question was this. You're telling me that you trust your eternal soul to a, to a religious system that somebody else believes and that you haven't thought through? How do you know you're right? How do you know you're not wrong? My goodness, you're trusting your soul to it. So tradition was their reason. And then I would begin my attacks on Christianity. And what's interesting, given the topic we're going to be talking about today, is that I would attack three major things, and um, uh, the first one would be the Trinity, um, because I thought it was indefensible. I thought Christians had had the hardest time defending against any attacks because it's such a hard thing to define, let alone defend. Um, So I'd start there. I would go against the Bible and say the Bible was once God's word, but was changed over time. And now we have the Quran, which is the perfectly preserved word of God, which doesn't have any changes in its history. Of course, that's not true, but I thought it was then. Um, And then I would attack the incarnation of God in Christ, that God, Jesus could never be actually God. Um, It's, you know, sort of a silly idea kind of a thing. And the crucifixion, uh, which was the sort of entailment of the incarnation, like why he Mm -hmm. was incarnated in the first place, 
I thought insulted God in the worst possible way. So I'd go after that. Trinity, Bible, incarnation, and cross. Those are the things I would go after. And most people didn't know what they believed and couldn't articulate it. No, they, they, they couldn't articulate it, let alone defend it. Um, but there were occasionally some people who did know how to articulate it and how to defend it. And I thought, I thought it was intriguing. I love getting into the discussion. But I'm a debater by heart, and so I like to debate, and I like to win my debates. So, so I found these people I found these people terribly annoying because they weren't so easy to, to, to defeat in these debates. So I began to study this stuff. Well, along the way, when I was in my uh, undergraduate days at University of Michigan, two guys came to our door at our apartment complex, and they were talking about Jesus to people, the two Baptist guys. And they're going door to door, and they came to my door, and they were getting a lot of doors slammed in their face, or no one would answer the door, that kind of a thing. But when they came to my door, I was like, oh, come on in, gentlemen. Um, let's go. I mean, I was, I was like, oh, they, they deliver. This is great. Um, so I didn't have to go looking for them. They came looking for me. Um, <clears throat> well, I made these two gentlemen extremely uncomfortable for hours at a time. Um, and they kept coming back, though. Every day, they kept coming back. Every Thursday, I should say. Um, and most Thursdays, if I wasn't in class or didn't have something going on or they didn't have some kind of plan, they'd come over and we'd have long, long discussions. And I got started thinking, these guys don't have all the best answers, but I could tell they love me. They want me to go to yeah. heaven. I want them to go to heaven. So we had this mutual love for one another. But I wanted to, I read a Bible. I got, picked up a Bible from the Gideons, by the way. I was walking down the street and Gideons were handing out Bibles and I tried to convert the Gideon to Islam, but it didn't work. <laughs> um, uh, grabbed the Bible and took it home to my apartment. So I wanted to show these two guys something that was inherently contradictory in the Bible that wasn't a small detail that could be explained away, but a fundamental detail like a uh, discrepant resurrection account or something Jesus says in one gospel that he contradicts in another or whatever it might be. And that's when I came across a passage reading this Bible that, 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 that really shook me up. Uh, in Luke chapter 3, verse 7, John the Baptist is talking to people uh, who are coming to him to be baptized, and he says to them, they think that, the, that, that their heritage will save them, that their tradition will save them from God's coming judgment and wrath. And he says, do not even begin to think to yourself, you have, uh, we have Abraham as our father, as if that would save them. For I tell you, God can raise up children of Abraham from the stones. So all of a sudden it strikes me. I had been saying to Christians, why are you a Christian? They'd say tradition. I'd say not good enough. John the Baptist was saying the same exact thing with the Jews of his oh, day. Yeah, why, yeah. Why, why do you come here? Because of tradition. And he says, not good enough. Truth trumps tradition. And what's interesting is no Christian had ever asked me that question. Why are you a Muslim? I asked them why you're a Christian. They never asked me, why are you a Muslim? Now, I had, had they asked me, I probably would have been ready with a bunch of evidence that I thought uh, supported Islam. But it took, I think, through the power of the Spirit in God's preserved word, I think it took so much effort for me to look for this stuff, but then God just breaks in, in the middle of a conversation or me reading something and says, why are you a Muslim? So you started asking yourself that question. Absolutely. And I realized it was tradition. I guess I had enough evidence to sort of back up what I believed at the time. But I decided that day I wasn't going to just believe it because I'm supposed to. I'm going to believe it because it's true. So I put Christianity and Islam and, and a lot of other worldviews as well to the test. I compared these two things. I was fully confident Islam would win. But to make a long story just a little bit longer, over the course of, at this point, probably 
another seven more years uh, of, of searching, the evidence began to mount that the Bible is, in fact, God's preserved word, that it makes sense doesn't insult God's greatness, but it actually highlights God's greatness, that he would become incarnate in Christ. And it actually makes sense. Not only only is it biblical, but it actually makes sense. And that the greatest possible being, who is God, would actually do the greatest possible act Mm -hmm. of love, which is self-sacrifice. And that's what the cross is. It was after I became a believer, after that seven-year journey, that the Trinity began to make sense to me. Now, I accepted it on faith, so to speak, because I read the Bible and I saw the Bible does in fact teach that there is a God, there is one God in his nature and who exists in three persons, three distinct personalities or three yeah. distinct minds within the one God. Um, and they share that coessence. I didn't quite understand it. I didn't, appreh- I didn't comprehend it. I thought, okay, well, the Bible teaches it. I already know it's the word of God. I've accepted Christ as my savior and all these things. I will get to that one day. I'll figure that one out. Um, and I still had a struggle with it for a long time um, until it suddenly snapped into place. But going back to my conversion story is that when I began to see all these things that I thought insulted God's greatness were actually the things that demonstrate God's greatness, that's when it really became real for me. And that no matter what price I would have to pay to become a, to become a Christian, and the price was pretty steep. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, it was nothing compared to what was paid for me. How could I refuse him? How could I say no to him who gave everything for me? And I would just be uncomfortable for a while if I gave everything to him. How could I say no to that? And that's when, the year 2000, I uh, gave my life to Christ. So 17 years ago. Yep, seventeen years ago. Seventeen indeed. years ago, it's fantastic. And I, what I'm, what I will do for our listeners, Abdu, is I'm going to put, and I know there are available on YouTube, your testimony in a lot more detail, and I'll put a link on there so people can go and watch it if they want to. Right. Uh, before we get into the subject of the Trinity, I thought it would be worthwhile to let everyone know that that you're currently the North American director of Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, and I would think that many of our our listeners wouldn't know. Uh, what that ministry is, and maybe you could tell us a bit about the mission and vision of RZIM or RZIM, as you would say it in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I'd be an honor. Thank you so much. Um, so, yeah, I joined RZIM or RZIM um, uh, about two years ago officially, but I've been affiliated with the ministry for a number of years before that. I had started my own ministry a number of years ago called Embrace the Truth. And it was largely an apologetics evangelism ministry. Um, uh, apologetics is one of these 50-cent words that um, uh, sounds uh, terribly complex, but it's really not. Uh, apologetics is simply the art and science of Christian persuasion. It's the, uh, the, it's the defense of the faith. You know, and, uh, and as you know, Rod, in 1 Peter 3.15, this word, uh, this Greek word, apologia, exists there in the New Testament. And it doesn't mean an uh, apology in the sense of being sorry for something, the Greek word actually means defense or reasoned answer. And um, so Christian apologetics is the art of giving a reasoned answer for the faith you have within you, uh, as 1 Peter 3.15 says, for the hope we have within us. It's one of my favorite passages. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, but do it with gentleness and respect. 
And that's, that is the hallmark verse of RZIM. Uh, it was one of the uh, important verses for my own, my previous ministry. Um, but when RZIM uh, and I worked together, they said, hey, why don't you join our team and take on a leadership role uh, with the team? RZIM is a global ministry. We have offices in a number of countries uh, with uh, 47 or 48 full-time speakers. Um, when you add our adjuncts and our volunteer speakers, we're up to 78, I think, across the world, um, from the Middle East and Asia, Australia, um, uh, the, 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 um, the UK and various countries in um, uh, Europe, Spain, Austria, and of course, we have a South African office and South American office, which is brand new. And um, uh, of course, our operations here in Canada and the US. Yeah, so yeah. I'm in charge of operations and vision for uh, Canada and the US. But to put succinctly what RZIM is all about, is to take that apologetics. And as Ravi would say, the founder of our ministry, apologetics is the seasoning. The gospel is the main course. Yeah. So apologetics is the rational defense of the Christian faith through science, history, um, uh, reasoning, and even existential uh, argument to give the gospel. It's to clear away the intellectual barrier so the gospel can be seen for what it truly is. And um, the mission statement of RZIM can be summed up in, our, in, our, in basically what it amounts to our tagline. Uh, we exist to help the thinker to believe and the believer to think. We want thinkers, the, the most influential people in society, to give the gospel a shot, to give it a yeah, look at its yeah, credibility. Yeah. But we want believers to be the kind of people who think through their faith, who engage every part of their being, so that they can actually say, not only does it make sense, not only does it touch my heart, but it makes sense in my mind. And you can articulate it on both those levels in a way that is winsome and beautifully spoken, but also convicting in its unabashed truth. So that's the goal of RZIM. And uh, like I said, we're, we're, all, we're all over the world and uh, partnering with great organizations like Power to Change, like Crew, uh, some key events and, and having great friends like you, Rod. Yeah, appreciate that. And I, I don't know if it was you, but I remember hearing this statement recently that the human brain is the most complicated thing in the entire universe. Mm. If, if, if I didn't say it, and I may have, um, I certainly think that's true. And, and, um, and I never really thought about it. It's an astounding statement that God has created us with this amazing ability to think. I mean, obviously, we need to stay humble and understand that God's ways are not our ways. They're beyond us. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't apply our best thinking to Scripture and do it in a way that gives God honor and glory. Well, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, he didn't create us to be like animals that just rely on base instincts. Um, but nor did he create us to be Mr. Spock's, who just operate on logic. There's this, there's this um, bridge between the heart and the, the emotional being and the intellectual being, and oftentimes they feed each other. There are some things that are tremendously beautiful, and their beauty by themselves unlocks certain truths that our minds comprehend. Mm -hmm. You know, apes don't sit around thinking about how beautiful the trees are in the jungle. They just use those for homes. Um, but um, <clears throat> uh, computers don't sit around and think about why they exist. Uh, we have this capacity not just to think and compute and deduct things from logic, but the ability to transcend those things and ask, why does logic exist at all? Yeah. How does logic work and these kind of things? And by the way, from the complexity thing, Rod, I remember, and this is maybe where I said it, I remember uh, there was an art, reading an article um, in a scientific journal 
about an effort by scientists from Germany and from Japan, which always makes you nervous when scientists from Germany and Japan get together. <laughs> um, but uh, they did an effort to duplicate human brain activity. They wanted to take how do we use computers to duplicate human brain activity? Uh -huh. And they, they took 79,000, 79,000 computer processors and hooked them up to the fifth most powerful computer in the world. And those computers, finally, all those computers could duplicate one second of human brain activity. Oh. And you know how long it took those 79,000 plus computers to do it? It took them 45 minutes to wow. duplicate the activity your brain can do in one second. One second, wow. And yet we think that that came about by accident. Yeah. The yeah. computers were all designed, but the brain is <laughs> by accident. It's, it's, it staggers the imagination. Yeah. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Indeed. Well, let's get back on, on to the topic I wanted to talk about with you, because I know this is something that is, is a favorite topic of yours, and that's the subject of the Trinity. And our listeners are par primarily uh, former oneness or modalists or people who are currently modalists and... And they currently hold a view that, of God that denies the doctrine of the Trinity. In, and, and in some ways, the modalist view of God is probably closer to that of Islam than it is to the doctrine of the Trinity. Yeah. And as someone who believed in Allah, the God of Islam, is the doctrine of the Trinity inconsistent with the unity of God? How do you respond to the criticism that the doctrine of the Trinity is at odds to the Shema of Deuteronomy 6.4, which states, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. What do you say to someone like that? Well, I, I would say a couple of things about that. First, I, I do think that um, it, you're right to point out the differences, is that people often say Islam and Christianity are, are, are largely the same, or there's very little difference, except that how they, how they view God. Uh, in which case, there's a tremendous amount of difference, because yeah. what else, what, what greater difference could there be amongst religions? Um, so uh, that's the first thing. I would say this, um, and I've heard this uh, argument about the Shema from oneness people, from uh, Jehovah's Witnesses who come to my door, uh, and of course from Muslims. In fact, I used to make that argument um, that, look, uh, the, the Trinity is this contrived thing. You don't see it in the earliest uh, texts of uh, the Old Testament uh, especially the Shema. So when you look at the Shema, actually, um, <clears throat> you see a couple of really interesting words in the Shema. When it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. What it actually says, if you were to look at the, at, at the actual language specifically of the Shema, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our gods, the Lord is unified. Um, <clears throat> you have two words there. You have for, for God, you have uh, Elohim, Elohim, which is a plural, which is a plural. Yeah. And then you have the word for one, which is echad. Then there's two ways to say the word one um, in Hebrew, much like Arabic, by the way, because they're both Semitic languages. In Hebrew, you have yachid, which is a way to say numerically one. And then you have the Hebrew way to say uni a, a unity of plurality or a unification, which is echad. Um, echad typically means a unity of pluralities. So <clears throat> God could have picked in Deuteronomy 6.4, if he was wanted, wanted to be absolutely clear that he's saying there is only numerically 
one God with no differentiation whatsoever in his in his nature and in his persons or his personhood, he could have said, Hero Israel, the Lord your God, single is Yahid. He could have said Yahid and then it would settle the debate. There'd be no issue whatsoever with regard to Deuteronomy six four, other passages of the of the Old Testament notwithstanding. Um but he didn't choose that word. Yeah. He chose Echad, and Echad is the word that means unified. Mm-hmm. For example, when the spies go and bring back the cluster of grapes from the land to show the bounty that's in the, the in land of Canaan, the Bible describes the cluster of grapes as an echad of grapes, a unity. It's not saying there's only one grape. Yeah. It's saying there's one cluster of grapes. There's one unification there. When Adam and Eve are, uh, when the Bible describes in the Old Testament that, that for this reason a man shall leave his mother and mother and cleave to his wife, or that they have become one flesh, they don't become yachid, they become echad. There is a unification. There are still two divine, there, there, sorry, there are still two human personalities uh-huh. in the bond of marriage, mm-hmm. but they are, in fact, a unified couple. They complement each other in a way that unifies them together. Yeah. So I would say the, the, the Shema does not disprove. Um, the the Trinity. Does it prove it? No, it doesn't prove it. But what it does show is that even in the earliest creedal affirmations of the people of Israel, based on a command that God had given to them through Moses, the command was to hear, O Israel, a hint. There was a hint that God is not just numerically one, but God is a unified being who is whole in every way there is to be whole. And that also has philosophical implications, but I would say that's what the, that's what the Shema gives you. It gives you a hint. We are going to end the podcast there for this week as we try to keep our episodes under 30 minutes. We invite you to join us next week for part two of our interview with Abdu Murray. If you have a question or comment, please feel free to go to our website at offtheshelf.life. There is a comment section at the bottom of every episode's webpage. Or you're welcome to send an email to rod at offtheshelf.life. Have a great week and thanks for listening.